Special thanks to Noah, News Over Audio, for sponsoring this episode. Noah is an audio app that allows you to listen to articles from premium publishers like The Economist, Bloomberg, and many more. Check out the link in the episode description for one month free of Noah Premium. Welcome to Many Happy Returns, where we aim to make you a better investor. I'm Roman. And I'm Michael. This year has seen remarkable shifts in currency markets, with the US dollar reaching a 20-year high and parity with the euro. Today we discuss the factors that drive exchange rates and the implications of a strong US dollar on trade, growth and investment. I want to know the prospects for the pound, euro and dollar going forward, and how our investments respond to currency moves. Which leads us to today's dumb question of the week. Should you currency hedge your investments? Okay, let's get into it. What factors drive exchange rates up and down? I think over the short term, you could just flip a coin. It is pretty random over the short term. There are certain macroeconomic factors which are generally agreed to, over a long period of time, make currencies move in a certain way. And I think the biggest one is interest rates. In a way, you can think of that as a kind of breeding rate of money, right? If you've got a higher (laughs) breeding rate of money, that currency will strengthen relative to other currencies where the rate of growth is smaller. So is that because investors that have a choice of where to park their money will tend to park it where interest rates are higher? That's the understanding. That's if you don't hedge it. If you're an institutional investor, you'll generally hedge these currency exposures often. But if you aren't hedging, then yeah, you could just park your money in dollars because the interest rate's higher there than, say, if you live in Japan, and then, you know, you convert it back. But then the difficulty is that that itself affects the currency exchange rate. So there is no free lunch, as we always say. And particularly if you do it in the forward market, which institutional investors often do, then these things are usually very close to profitless, these trades, because of the arbitrage trade that's possible. So that's one reason then. People are kind of shopping around for the best return on their money in safe markets. What else might affect the exchange rate? Well, certainly inflation matters because if you've got a currency which effectively is losing its buying power very quickly, and if you want to think of an extreme, think about Zimbabwe, then, you know, that's going to weaken the currency relative to others where inflation is not so high. I mean, since we started recording this podcast, the Zimbabwean exchange rate has halved again. (laughs) And certainly some of the models that you look at, look at something called purchasing power parity. So how much does $1 buy in terms of stuff? And then if you have the same basket of stuff in, say, pounds, how much does one pound buy? And then the idea is that over long periods of time, the purchasing power of the two currencies will move into line with each other. One other thing I came across is that the current account of a country kind of matters for the exchange rate. Now, it's a little bit technical, but I understood this to be basically the difference between the value of exports and imports into and out of a country. So if it's a net importer, then it's kind of buying more goods from abroad than it can actually afford. So it can't pay for them through the sale of its exports. The way I kind of understand it is this excess demand for foreign currency lowers the country's exchange rate. Yeah, so these things are kind of self-correcting. And that's how these equilibrium models come about. You assume that there's something which is unequal, and then the exchange rate adjusts gradually over time until the two things come back into balance. So that current account thing sounds like the macroist of the macros, right? It's the whole country, what's going in and out. But I think, you know, some of these imbalances, if they do persist for a long period of time, ultimately cause crises. For example, lots of Americans buying Chinese goods, 
and then Chinese people lending money to people in the US to buy those goods, ultimately that thing isn't sustainable. And that did lead potentially to the crisis that we saw in 2008. Interesting. And certainly that's what Ben Bernanke seemed to think at the time. So, so far we've had interest rates where a higher interest rate should, in theory, strengthen the currency. We've had inflation where high inflation should, in theory, weaken the currency. We've got the current account where if you're importing more than you're exporting, over time that should weaken the currency. There's also public debt to consider, isn't there? I don't really think that's been a big driver. For example, if you look at Japan's debt to GDP ratio, it's way above other developed markets. But does that stop people from buying Japanese government bonds? Well, I think the yields probably do. But do worries about Japan defaulting stop people from investing in JGBs? I don't think so. But certainly if a country looks like it might default, then that's not good for its currency. Yeah, I mean, if, for example, the US has this occasional debt ceiling debate where they kind of threaten to default on their debt. Wink, wink. <laughs> I mean, it would, it would just be catastrophic. But it would put things like 2008 into the shade. We'd have to remove the word happy from the title of the podcast. It would just be <laughs> no returns. <laughs> <laughs> so I think those situations, you know, they do lead to a sell-off in treasuries. The yields spike higher, but it's never really come to pass. And certainly in developed markets, it's not a concern. In emerging markets, it is a concern. Yeah, so it seems like all of these factors we've talked about can kind of be a proxy for economic performance, right? If the country's economy is performing strongly, then it will probably have higher interest rates. It will probably have lower inflation. So are we basically saying countries that are doing well economically tend to have stronger currencies over time? Yeah, I think that's absolutely fair. And I think another kind of short-term factor, you know, I'd make a distinction here between long-term drivers and short-term drivers. Fear is a very powerful short-term driver of currency. So, for example, there are certain safe haven currencies, for example, the US dollar, the Swiss franc, the Japanese yen. And then there are risky currencies, which is now sterling. But, you know, things like commodity currencies like the Aussie dollar, so what do you mean by commodity currencies? So these are currencies of countries which get a lot of their income as a country from exporting commodities. Right. So that could be oil. So for example, Norway, the Norwegian krona, you know, the Noki, that's going to be driven very much by energy prices. Another one would be the Aussie dollar, because they export a lot of raw materials such as iron and copper to China. And if those commodity prices come down, it's bad for the economy. So they are linked to economic growth and they are cyclical in that sense. Yeah, because commodities tend to be stronger when economic growth is stronger. That's right. And if China's growth, for example, stumbles or if it looks as if it's going to get weaker, you'd expect things like commodity prices to come down for copper because it's a big consumer of copper. And that's bad for the Aussie dollar because it's bad for Australia. So these currencies you've mentioned here, the pound, the Aussie dollar whatever the Norwegian thing's called. <laughs> the Noki. The Noki. Yeah. So they are all going to suffer generally in economic downturns and people will put their money into dollars, yen and Swiss francs. Yeah, if you're scared and you run back to mummy, mummy is the US dollar, it's the Swissy, the Swiss franc. I love that you have little nicknames for them all. <laughs> well, this is what they call it on the trading floor, yeah. My favourite is Noki Stocky, which is the Norwegian krona versus the Swedish krona. What was your slang for the British pound? 
<laughs> it's not a leading question, Robin. There are also kind of nicknames for currency pairs. So the one for sterling versus the dollar is called cable. That's the only one I've heard, yeah. Why is it called cable? Well, apparently there was a cable that ran under the ocean where they'd actually telegraph the changes from one country to another. But of course now it's all completely different. All this leads us nicely on to what currencies have done well in 2022 and which haven't. I think the big one, and certainly in terms of the largest currency trading pair, the euro versus the US dollar, if you look at flows, daily flows in currency, they're absolutely phenomenally big because these are the two largest economic regions globally and they trade with each other. And then the companies which do the trade have to hedge, they have to convert their profits. So that's a huge currency pair. And so when that went to parity, which means equality, where one euro was equal to a dollar, or at least very, very, very close to it, that is absolutely shocking. At least it was based on rates in the past. So why has that happened? Why is 2022 the year when it's gone to parity? I think a big driver of it is economic growth, as we said at the beginning. You know, that's ultimately the kind of driver of things like interest rates and also economic policy. We didn't mention monetary policy, which is also important. But certainly the monetary policy from the ECB was very, very accommodative at the same time that the US was pretty much into its rate hike cycle. And that was because the ECB was holding back because its economy was more fragmented and also weaker than the US. Um, let's give them some credit, Roman. They did do a massive hike to zero. <laughs> they hiked their interest rate up to zero. <laughs> yeah, so it was a shock. It was a shock when it happened because for a long time, as far as I can remember, I mean, for a lot of my career when I was working for investment banks, it was negative, which was very odd. But yeah, you're right. They have finally started to hike. So maybe that difference won't persist now. Yeah, it's like climbing the stairs from the basement and they're finally on the ground floor. Yeah, while the Fed is already kind of on the first floor. But maybe they'll meet back on the way down. And uh, Andrew Bailey's jumping out of the window. (laughs) (laughs) Who knows where Andrew Bailey is? He's stuck in the lift. (laughs) Hello. (laughs) (laughs) So in terms of the reasons why the euro has fallen so much versus the dollar, Paul Krugman, the economist at the New York Times, had a quote which I quite liked, which said, I suspect... The central reason for the euro's plunge is not interest rates, but a major downward revision in investors' views of European competitiveness, and hence of the perceived long-term sustainable value of Europe's currency. So he's really more focused on all those challenges that we've talked about before for Europe. There's demographic challenges, there's obviously energy challenges, and that's just far worse as an economic situation than what the US finds itself in. And currency responds really quickly to these kind of worries. You know, I used to sit on the trading floor. That was where my desk was for many years. And every time there was a new piece of economic data out, there was a roar from the trading floor as, you know, people were placing trades. And then it was a lot of excitement. So you couldn't ignore the macro data because it was what would drive the trading flow on the trading desk. I could just imagine you sat there with your little noise cancelling headphones on, beaming away at R. And you're like, what's going on? <laughs> That's not far from the truth. Certainly when I started. And people would talk about this thing called non-farm payrolls. And I thought, what on earth is that? And of course, you know, and now I live and breathe it. And I'm always rabbiting on about it. But at that time, it just seemed crazy. Who cares about this number? Guys, you're disturbing my model making. That's right. (laughs) But certainly over the short term, that's what drives these currency movements. And over the longer term, you have these equilibrium models, which very gradually bring things back into line. And one of my favourites is the Big Mac index, because I like Big Macs. 
And McPlants now, you told me. And McPlants, yeah. That was a surprise, a pleasant surprise. But what I like about it is it is a standardised thing, right? A Big Mac. It's pretty much the same in every country. And the stuff that goes into it is locally sourced. So a lot of that is actually wages because you have to pay people to kind of serve these things up and cook them. And the raw materials become less important over time, probably. But if you compare the price of a Big Mac, it tells you roughly which currencies are overvalued. So if a Big Mac is very expensive in the USA versus Switzerland, then perhaps the dollar is weaker than it should be. Interesting. Relative to the Swissy. But you can extend this idea to an entire trading basket, and that's how these PPP models come about, where you look at the purchasing power based on a big basket of stuff, which is standardised. So we're going to come on to the unique role of the dollar in the global economy and why a strong dollar could pose problems around the world. One of the resources we use to research this topic is NOAA, News Over Audio, who are kindly sponsoring this episode. NOAA is an audio app that gives you quality in-depth analysis and opinion from multiple perspectives. Their dedicated team of expert editors handpick the best articles to bring you the story behind the news. Yeah, so NOAA curates articles from premium publishers like The Economist, Bloomberg and The Washington Post into dedicated series that guide listeners through the story. In fact, to research this podcast, we listened to the series Why a Strong Dollar Could Be a Big Problem, which really got me up to speed because you know, Romin, I need a lot of getting up to speed before we do these podcasts. (laughs) (laughs) So NOAA is available on mobile, desktop, smart speakers and in your car so you can listen wherever you are. Thanks again to NOAA, which is available for £7.99 a month. And if you look in the episode description, you'll find an exclusive link to access one month free of NOAA Premium. But Robin, they say there's only one free lunch in finance, and that's diversification. We found another one. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, so let's talk about the strong dollar. So in July of this year, the dollar hit the highest level it has in two decades. And that's measured by a sort of trade-weighted dollar, it's called. Should we just clarify what exactly is the trade-weighted dollar? Yeah, so the idea here is that you look at the value of the dollar versus its trading partners, and it's a weighted basket, so you look at how much it trades with each country, and then a country which it trades with more will have a bigger weight in the basket. Okay, that makes sense. So, for example, some of the largest weights are for things like the euro, that's 58% of the trade-weighted dollar, the yen is 14%, sterling's 12%, and so on. So is it taking the exchange rates for all these different currency pairs with the dollar, grouping them up with these weightings, and then saying, is the dollar getting stronger or weaker on average? That's exactly it, yeah. And so that shows that the dollar really has strengthened in 2022. Yeah, I mean, it's been astonishing. So at the beginning of this year, the trade-weighted dollar was at around 108 in these kind of arbitrary units, and then it peaked at around 120. So there was a huge strengthening. It has reversed since then, but, you know, it was incredibly strong. And I think a lot of that was due to the monetary policy differences, but also how well the US was coming out of this post-pandemic crisis period. So why do we focus on the dollar so much? Why is the dollar so important? I think one of the reasons is that it's a global reserve currency. So if you are a central bank and you have to park your excess reserves, you're going to put it mostly into dollars. Not all of it, but most of it. Because it's seen as stable and often you do business in dollars. So even if you're a European company trading in the Far East, often those deals will be done in US dollars. Or if you look at commodity prices like oil or gold, they're all denominated in dollars. And it hasn't always been that way. For example, it used to be done in pounds when Britain was part of a great trading empire. But of course, that's not true anymore. (laughs) Well, why do the politicians keep talking about global Britain then, Romin? (laughs) 
<laughs> Perhaps in their dreams, but I think that's unlikely to happen again. I mean, to give a little scale to why the dollar is so important, 90% of global Forex transactions, so that's $6 trillion worth per day, includes the dollar as one of the currency pair. So it's overwhelmingly the currency of trade. And the thing that people forget is how important the euro is. I mean, everyone slags off the euro and says it's kind of irrelevant, but I think about 20% of the trade is in euros. It depends on how you look at it, whether you look at spot transactions, which is, for example, pounds versus dollars, or whether you look at derivatives as well, over-the-counter derivatives, things like currency forwards. But generally, the pattern's the same, which is dollar first, euro second. It's interesting you mentioned about the dollar being the reserve currency, because there's an interesting question, isn't there, at the moment of, is that going to change because of the sanctions the US and Europe has put on Russia, which has basically kind of frozen the Russian central bank's reserves in dollars? Is that going to make other countries think twice about the reliability of the dollar? The trouble is, I think, that there's so much stuff for people to buy in the US in terms of things like the equity market, the bond market, that they have this huge economic dominance. And if you want to buy those things, you've got to pay in dollars. So they make up 60% of equity markets. They make up 40% of bond markets. So if you want to buy something safe, you buy US treasuries and you need dollars to do it. So I think while that remains the case, while they remain so economically dominant and their stock market remains so huge, I can't see the dollar waning as a reserve currency. It's also just there is no alternative, really. Not at the moment. And I think, you know, people talk about things like crypto or the Chinese renminbi as an alternative, but those are just way behind in terms of desirability, but also safety. You know, the perceived safety of the dollar is, is unchallenged. Because to be a true reserve currency, you really need a few things. You need deep capital markets, clear rule of law, and a huge economic size and liquidity, which only really the US has at the moment. And stuff that people want to buy denominated in that currency. I yeah, think that's the yeah, other exactly. key thing. And the other thing, you mentioned the Chinese renminbi, and if that could, over time, take the role of the dollar. But if countries are worried about you know, the US arbitrarily sanctioning them and freezing their reserves, surely the concern over China is as much, if not more so, they're not afraid to use their power overseas. I think what we'll probably see is a kind of regional splitting of who uses what currency. So if your major trade partner is going to be China, so if you're one of these small EM countries in the kind of zone of influence of China in the Far East, then it's very likely you'll park your central bank currency in renminbi. You know, why not? Maybe you'd have some dollars as well, but primarily you could use renminbi. So I think what will probably happen is we will get this fragmentation and perhaps gradually over time, as China gets larger economically and the US stays roughly the same size, then we will see a greater dominance of the renminbi. But it's going to be a long time for the renminbi to take over from the dollar, I think. I mean, at the moment, the scale of the renminbi in terms of reserves at central banks is absolutely tiny. I mean, part of the reason is China has capital controls, right? You can't just move money out of China very easily. And I think another problem is that people are worried about the political stability in China because it is an EM country and parking your reserve currency in an EM currency is not something that a lot of countries, certainly in developed markets, would be willing to do. I mean, it is true that the US dollar has fallen as a percentage of global reserves. So since the year 2000, I believe it's gone from 71% of central bank reserves around the world to just 59% now. So it's not catastrophic, but it is shrinking. 
But the same thing happened to the pound. You know, if you look at what happened to the pound as currency that was used globally for trade, what happened was that it gradually faded rather than suddenly disappearing overnight until eventually the dollar came to the fore and kind of took over. Yeah, so this is the point of Barry Eichengreen, who's an economic historian, and he says, the traditional view is that international currency status is a winner-take-all game, that there's room on the global stage for only one true international currency. That's the Highlander model, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, there, there can, can be, be only, only one. one. <laughs> so he continues that the argument was that network effects are so strong that they create a natural monopoly because it pays to use the same currency in cross-border transactions that everyone else is using. But the new view is that financial technology has moved on and network effects are no longer so strong. So it's easier to switch between currencies. But I think he's probably right, isn't he? And it's what we're seeing in the data. Yeah, I think it will be gradual. And if it does change, then it won't be a thing that happens overnight. I'd be amazed if it happened in my lifetime that the renminbi overtook the US dollar in terms of trading flow and the number of transactions that it was used for. Yeah, so the IMF had a working paper called The Stealth Erosion of Dollar Dominance, which is kind of summarising all of this that we've talked about. And it's interesting that when you look at, with the dollar falling as a percentage of global reserves, well, where's that money going? What's the alternative? And they say the decline of the dollar's share has not been accompanied by an increase in the shares of the pound, sterling, the yen or the euro, which are the other long-standing reserve currencies. But rather, the shift out of dollars has been in two directions, a quarter into the Chinese renminbi and three quarters into the currencies of smaller countries that have played a more limited role in the past. So it's kind of diversification is what central banks are doing. And perhaps that's a good thing. I mean, some people certainly see dollar dominance as a curse. And I've read some papers by US economists which have said, you know, this isn't necessarily a good thing for the US. And it may actually be holding back the US in terms of having this exorbitant privilege, as it's been called. Yeah, there was an article in FT Alphaville, which I loved, which was about whether the US has the so-called Dutch disease. Now, that isn't something you pick up in the red light district of Amsterdam. It's something more economic, isn't it, Robin? <laughs> I wouldn't know about the red light district in Amsterdam, but I did like the flower market there. That was really good. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't pick up any diseases there, though, I don't think. No, right. We need to say what Dutch disease is. So the idea is that you've got one massively dominant industry. So the Netherlands discovered natural gas in the late 1950s. They exploited that and it made a hugely successful industry. But it massively dominated their entire economy and it strengthened their currency. So that meant that if you weren't working in the oil industry, you kind of had a really expensive currency, which made your exports look really expensive. And it kind of squeezed all those other industries and actually hurt the economy as a result. Yeah, it's a really interesting phenomenon. And in terms of the US, which is why we brought this up, there's this theory that the US dollar being the reserve currency makes it kind of much stronger than the US economy in fact deserves and has been a prime cause of the collapse of manufacturing in much of the US. So the quote that you've got here I love, which is basically around 1980, the United States discovered that it was the Saudi Arabia of money. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Everybody wants the dollar. But is being the Saudi Arabia of money good for America? And this is the argument, right, which is that it isn't. It's certainly not good for manufacturing, is the argument. Like being an exporter, it's hard for the US to export. I mean, ideally, what they want is to create something like the EU, where they get shackled to a really bad economy, and then they cause a crisis and it devalues the currency. They could take Britain on as the 51st state 
<laughs> we could devalue your currency for you. Yeah, that's a brilliant uh, economic model for the future of the UK. The Sterlo dollar. Yeah, that would be the new currency. <laughs> but it's an interesting point, isn't it? That the preeminence of the dollar is maybe good for trade around the world, but difficult for America in some respects. Though it does get a lot of benefits. You know, it can really apply things like sanctions where it wants to and economic pressure. So it's good in a geopolitical sense, but maybe not great for its local manufacturers. And one thing we saw earlier this year was Zoltan Posner, who's an analyst at Credit Suisse. So he was thinking through, oh, is the dollar going to stay as the reserve currency of the world? And his view is probably not. So he thought it was going to become a system that's headed by China and its currency and backed by a basket of commodities. Did you look into this? Yeah, I did a video about Bretton Woods 3. This is the name he gave to the new system, which he foresaw. But the idea was that it would be much more commodity-based. Also, that it would be more fragmented. So pretty much what we've said, which is that, you know, the dollar would still be dominant within its own sphere of influence, but then China and the renminbi would become more important when you consider local transactions in the East. I mean, it brings us to a point which I've wondered, which is, is the US dollar actually that strong? Or is it just the least weak of all the currencies right now? Because if you compare the dollar to a basket of commodities... It's weakening. It's not strengthening. Like Inflation is really high. How can we say the dollar is strong right now? I think everyone's in the same boat. I think that's the problem. A lot of the driver behind Zoltan Pozhar's idea was that commodity prices were becoming much more important. The focus has been very much on technology and sort of intangible stuff for a long time. But now the focus has moved back to the importance of stuff. You know, you've got to put gasoline or petrol into your car. You've got to make stuff for people to use. And ultimately, that depends on commodities. So, you know, maybe he's got a point. You know, we went from something which was the dollar backed by physical gold to fiat currencies where you just have to have faith in the country. And now he's saying that we're going to get Bretton Woods 3, which is a commodity backed set of currencies in the East. And he says that's going to weaken the euro dollar system. Yeah, I always hear this phrase euro dollar. And I sort of half grasp what it can be, and it always slips my grasp again. So let's clarify, what is the euro dollar? Because it's not the exchange rate between the euro and the dollar. It's something entirely different. No, so these are dollar deposits made in banks outside the US, and they've existed for a long time, right? And the good thing about them is they're not regulated by the US. So usually you get a higher interest rate for euro dollar deposits, and you know that made them attractive. So this was originally US dollar deposits in Europe, presumably, but now it just means any dollar deposits outside the US. So a lot of it's in uh, the Cayman Islands, right? <laughs> oh. <laughs> That's true, right? There's like a huge amount in offshore accounts. That is true. Yeah, yeah. But it's, I mean, it's sometimes very difficult to trace. But the euro dollar system is important, obviously, because of the dollar being so important for trade. But he says that that's going to be less true in the future as China comes to dominate trade globally. He says we're going to have some kind of euro renminbi system. <laughs> okay, I'm going to press the doubt button here, but you know, okay. we'll see. <laughs> <laughs> Look, the guy's got to write stuff every day, so you know I feel for him. He always goes viral, doesn't he? Oh yeah, because he says stuff like this. <laughs> yeah, I mean the crazier it is, the better. That's the thing, Roman. We're not crazy enough. We need to say more crazy stuff. <laughs> But just thinking through, so we have had a massive strengthening of the dollar versus other currencies this year. What effect does that have? So let's start with the US economy. What effect does it have there? Well, the US imports a lot of stuff, and that stuff's getting cheaper as a result. So if you're importing stuff like Walmart from other countries, it's made those goods effectively cheaper. So for the US consumer, you've got to kind of pass through disinflationary effect, although 
it's pretty hard to see that in the data right now. Yeah, inflation's high, but this is one thing that could help reduce inflation in the US, right? Yeah. A strong dollar means overseas imports are going to cost less, relatively speaking. On the other hand, if you're a US company which exports stuff, and I'm thinking of companies like Caterpillar or one of the tech companies which exports services like Netflix, then it's been a terrible thing. And in fact, if you look at Netflix's earnings, they've been massively negatively impacted by the strong dollar because they report in dollars. And when you convert your euro subscriptions to Netflix back into dollars, it's just been atrocious. And presumably then the temptation is for these US companies like Netflix to start raising prices in Europe, say, to compensate for the strong dollar. You could do that. Or another thing that you can do is ensure that your costs are in the local currency. It isn't so bad if your revenue and your costs are in the foreign currency because then they both fall together. But Netflix is the worst of both worlds because its costs are in dollars and its revenue is in foreign currency. So really, dollar strength is atrocious for them. It needs to start paying its staff in euros then. That'll make them happy. (laughs) (laughs) I'm sure they'd love that. (laughs) And what about outside the US for consumers and companies in Europe and elsewhere? Well, certainly if you're selling to US companies, then, you know, your services are looking more attractive. So in that sense, it's been good for, say, German car manufacturers, which are selling into the US. But if you are trading in dollars, if your local currency is weakened, it's also good because you report in your local currency, presumably. So revenue generated in US dollars looks better locally. But here's the thing. A lot of commodities are priced in dollars. And so your input costs to manufacture your products are presumably going up a lot. And if you look at the total value of exports minus the total value of imports, that's actually turned negative for many countries. Even Germany. Even Germany. So Germany, Japan, both of them have to import a lot of their energy, in fact, almost all of it. And if they're paying in dollars for that and they've got a weakened currency which Japan has and Germany has, then it makes it look like you've got a huge trade deficit, which for those countries is really shocking. I mean, it doesn't just make it look like you have, you actually do have a huge trade deficit. You do have, and it's not good for the country. It doesn't mean they're exporting less stuff. It means that they're having to import more expensive stuff, which is energy. And certainly those higher input costs for their businesses, particularly manufacturing, which does require energy, you know, that's going to be a problem. So this is the kind of idea that's behind the dollar doom loop, which I know you've done a video on and did get quite a bit of press over the last couple of months. Do you want to explain how that works? So the idea is you have a stronger dollar, then that leads to lower manufacturing around the world. You can actually document that if you look at PMI indices, which are kind of leading indicator of GDP. When the dollar's strong, generally that reduces PMIs outside the US. So people make less stuff. And that means lower commodity prices because the demand for commodities is lower. That in turn reduces global trade. That worries people about global growth. And that makes the dollar stronger again. So you go round the loop again and again. So that makes the dollar stronger because now people are worried about growth and they go to the safe haven, which is the dollar. And yeah, (laughs) then you start the whole process again. (laughs) But is this a real thing? Does this actually happen? Well, I don't know. I mean, all of these things which are a little bit hand-wavy. I think the link between the stronger dollar and lower global manufacturing is the weakest one. Certainly, if you look at the PMI data, it is a negative relationship. But I'm not sure I completely buy into... If you're a German car manufacturer 
and the dollar's strong, are you going to make less cars? Well, not if you're shipping some of your cars to the Far East, to China, for example. So I think as the US becomes less economically dominant, this whole dollar doom loop logic is going to get weaker. So just for a moment, let's assume that it does happen. This dollar doom loop goes through a few cycles and things get worse and worse. What could, in theory, break us out of it? I think a growth surprise. So let's say everybody's at the moment saying, you know, there's going to be a recession, things are terrible. But what if growth started to improve for reasons that we didn't really think about? Well, if that happens, then yeah, it would break the loop because a big part of the loop is risk aversion and that leads to a strong dollar. But if there was some kind of surprise on the upside, let's say, you know, US earnings turn out to be okay towards the end of this year then we could see a big pickup in risk appetite and the dollar would probably weaken as a result. Or there could be massive fiscal stimulus from China. In fact, the latest data show that's not the case, but it could happen in future. If you look at what's happening with the COVID policy there, they have to counteract that somehow. And they could do that with a massive stimulus. Would that not further strengthen the dollar, though, if China printed a load of money? Well, generally, I mean, certainly what happened last time they did this, it actually resulted in a pickup in risk appetite. So that was actually bad for the dollar. That's the thing with all these currency moves, right? There's so many factors and variables here that predicting it and which way currency pairs are going to move is surely impossible. Yeah, currency is almost impossible to predict, particularly over the short term. I mean, PPP does pretty well over the long term purchasing power parity. But it takes a long time for these things to come into line. So it's weird, isn't it, that currency is maybe the hardest thing to predict in the short term, yet it is the biggest scam thing on the internet to try and sell people courses about Forex <laughs> trading. Like, why? Why? I think it's because it trades pretty much 24 hours a day, if you want to. And I think people think they can predict it because all of the data is publicly available. You know, if you want to look up interest rates, if you want to look up economic data like payrolls, which drive it short term, then you can do that. And it seems like there's an intuitive narrative to build around it. It's just that a lot of that narrative doesn't work, or at least so many people know it that it's already priced in. So I think trying to forecast Forex over the next few minutes, it is just flipping a coin. And the only people that make money out of it are the brokers and the charlatans that sell courses to try and convince people they can day trade this stuff. Yeah, I don't think we're going to be able to charge $10,000 for this advice, Roman. <laughs> Roman's Forex course. <laughs> and if you ever see someone with a profile picture of your face selling Forex courses or Bitcoin courses, it is a scam, right? You get a million people like that on social media. It did happen. <laughs> the thing is, so many people know us now that they actually told me about it and they said, look, this isn't you, is it? <laughs> yeah, you're sort of <laughs> moonlighting as a con artist. The question about currency hedging crops up all the time, and we've got a lot of members-only content about that very topic. If you want to get access to that, and also Slack so you can discuss it further, then simply sign up to our membership on pensioncraft.com. Okay, today's dumb question of the week comes from Nat, and it's around currency. And it's weirdly, actually, currency and should I currency hedge my investments is probably the question we get more than anything else. But in this instance, Nat asks, is it better to buy a fund that is currency hedged to protect against fluctuations in the exchange rate? Or should I just leave it and not currency hedge? What are we thinking about here when we're trying to answer this question? Well, one way to think about it is in terms of volatility. So the volatility of a developed market, stock market, is usually around 15 to 20%. So that means a typical annual price move is around those numbers. 
If you look at developed market FX, currency rates, the volatility is around 10% or 12%, somewhere around there. So it's less than the equity volatility. So why would you hedge something which is swamped by the equity volatility anyway? Whereas if you look at a bond fund, so let's look at US short-term treasuries, the volatility there could easily be like 2%. So if you buy it as a sterling investor, someone based in the UK, all you'll see is the currency volatility of dollar versus sterling. Yeah, you've inadvertently taken out a bet on the US dollar. Yeah, that's all it is. That's what's going to drive the value of that fund. So hedging the value of very volatile things doesn't make sense. Hedging the value of things which are very low volatility below that of the currency does make sense. So that's why you often see bond funds which are currency hedged, whereas you very seldom see equity funds which are currency hedged. Yeah, that all makes sense. Is the other question, how long are we going to hold it for? Because I think if you are making a short-term tactical play, even if it's on something volatile like the stock market in the US, if you're only going to hold it for a month, which we would never think is a good idea, but anyway, if you were going to do that, then maybe you would want to currency hedge it in that short-term environment. Yeah, the example I always think of, it's actually my favourite episode of Grand Designs, which was this UK house-building programme. Essentially, you build your own house. And this couple from the UK had bought a hoof house, which is designed and manufactured in Germany. And literally, they can build you a house in a week because it's all basically prefab. But unfortunately, they had to pay in euros and they hadn't hedged the euro exposure. And over the course of designing the house and choosing the furnishings and the fixings, the value of sterling weakened versus the euro. So they didn't actually have enough money to make a deposit on the house, but eventually they sorted it out and it was fine. But if you are doing something over the short term, then you really do have to think about hedging. So yeah, okay, that makes sense for the short term. But then if we're doing long-term investing, which is generally what we talk about here, maybe it becomes less beneficial to currency hedge. Yeah, because what usually drives equity markets is an upward drift in profits, which is roughly about 6 7% above inflation over time, which is roughly equal to the growth of the equity market as well. And that's not a coincidence. And that upward drift pretty much happened for the US, for example, since the Second World War. So over time, it compounds hugely. Whereas if the driver of currency is interest rate differentials, in developed markets, they get out of sync temporarily, but they're usually roughly equal to one another. So that's why over very long periods of time, currency doesn't drift as much as equity. It's interesting that you say currency doesn't really drift, because I hear that a lot. But then I looked at this graph of pound sterling versus the US dollar going back to 1800, right? And it showed that back in the 1800s, for a long time, it was basically a fixed exchange rate of around $5 for one pound. And then in the 20th century, it basically drifted. It looks like to me it's drift, where the pound went from, yeah, five to one, all the way down to, you know, where we are now, which is just over one to one, almost like 1.2 or whatever it is. And it's kind of been a steady drift down over that time. And if you look at the value of sterling versus the dollar right now, it actually looks undervalued based on purchasing power parity. So I think I wouldn't be surprised if sterling did rally versus the dollar. You know, I think for a long time, it's been trading in a kind of range. Brexit certainly knocked sterling. But I think the key point is the one we talked about earlier, which is that, you know, the UK was reserve currency of the world. That weakened a lot over time as it became less dominant. And certainly the exchange rate reflects that. But, you know, now that we are in this range, which is closer to PPP, and I wouldn't be surprised if sterling did rally a lot versus the dollar. Even if we don't have a strong recovery? I think it'll take a while. 
And I think it'll take a while for things to recover from the shock of COVID. But certainly based on these models, if we do move closer to purchasing power parity, then, you know, sterling would strengthen a lot. Interesting. So you're bullish on the pound. (laughs) I think I'd, I'd stress is that it takes decades for these changes to happen. So, for example, in the early 70s, the UK was hugely overvalued on this same measure, and it took 15 years for things to come back into line. So, you know, I wouldn't hold your breath. Okay, well, we'll see if that happens. So it's interesting, isn't it? The world of currency is kind of changing. Like we've said, no one really knows, right? There's all these theories about what's going to happen over the next 50 years in terms of reserve currencies and exchange rates. So is that not maybe an argument that maybe currency hedging for the long term might make more sense now? Because of the greater geopolitical risks? Yeah. Maybe. I think for some countries, it might make sense. But in developed markets, I still think that, you know, we've had a massive economic shock. It's like ringing a bell. And we're still seeing the kind of repercussions, the reverberations through the global economy from that shock. But eventually, we're going to go back to that kind of normal situation where the policy rates are roughly equal. And that driver, which has moved currencies like everything else, will eventually start to normalise. Let's hope so. Certainly this year, if you're a British investor in international equities or in the US, you'd be much better off having not currency hedged your investment. Yeah, I think if you look at the value of the US stock market in sterling terms, you know, we really haven't had much of a sell-off at all. No, it's interesting, isn't it? When you've got a currency which tends to do really badly when there's a stock market crash, then it's kind of like a, what's the word? It's like a built-in hedge. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, the fact that it is almost an EM currency makes sterling pretty much an equity hedge, from the point of view of UK investors at least. Thank you for joining us for Many Happy Returns. It would be great if you could leave us a quick rating or review on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you listen to the show. And do remember to check out pensioncraft.com for all the information about our membership, courses, and investment coaching options. Many Happy Returns is a Pensioncraft production, co-hosted and executive produced by Romin Nakiza and Michael Pugh. This podcast is for informational and entertainment purposes and is not financial advice. We do not provide recommendations or endorse any decision to buy, sell or hold any security. We cannot be held responsible for any actions listeners may take and investors are encouraged to seek independent financial advice.